All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. This is August 16th, 2016. As I like to remind you each and every week, I am also uh, the, aud- the uh, editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, to sign up for my letter or Chen's letter, go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. And I would also uh, encourage you to go to miningstocks.com, not just to sign up for my newsletter, although a growing number of you are doing that. Uh, another reason to go there is because there's some fantastic articles uh, about the reasons uh, I select, actually, articles that I think explain why the price of gold is heading much, much higher. And also, if you are a subscriber to my letter, I have uh, all of the news releases of importance for companies that I have recommended in my newsletter. So go to miningstocks.com. you get an idea of what my letter is about just by going there uh, and uh, and looking at the, uh, at the homepage. Uh, we do want to thank our sponsors for today's show for making this show economically viable. They are Trimetals Mining, Coral Gold Resources, New Legacy Gold Corp., Brazil Resources, Columbus Gold, and RN Resources. We had several questions, and I would encourage you to continue sending in your questions and comments and so forth. I can't read them all on the air, but uh, I'll just mention a couple of the questions that we had over the last week or so because I think they are uh, very pertinent to today's show. First of all, one, uh, one listener... Uh, whose name is Ian, questioned uh, about RN Resources. Uh, RN Resources rose in price from about $1 to $4. Uh, back in February, it was as low as uh, as, as $1, uh, and it rose to over $4. Now it's fallen back to 3 and 3 and three eighths or something like that, $3.5, something Canadian uh, money we're talking about. Ian wants to know why the dramatic decline. Well, I would say... Ian, probably if you bought right at the top, yes, it's a painful decline. But if you step back and look at this, it's got a, it, it, it is a very constructive chart. It is a chart. Uh, uh, this is a correction, I think, that is more than normal, very, very normal chart. Uh, and I am extremely bullish on this stock, which is why it is my second largest holding. I can see some uh, blockbuster drill results uh, that I think could very well, most likely will be coming, I expect, uh, in the next several weeks from the noon event project. And then going into next year, uh, in the winter, the company will be exploring and developing some very highly prospective properties in Peru. So I am a big fan of RN Resources. It is, as I say, my second largest holding. Speaking of larger holdings, my number one holding remains Novo Resources. 
I was scheduled to have Quentin Henning, Dr. Quentin Henning, uh, the CEO of that company, on to talk about thing uh, to give us an update on Novo Resources. We had some technical difficulties with a pre-recording I was doing from his location, uh, talking to him in uh, Australia, and we had to uh, we had to scrap that. But uh, Dr. Henning will be with me, uh, presumably in the next couple of weeks, sometime to give you an update. But that is my number one pick, uh, the one that I have most of my. Uh, the largest holding that I have is in Novel uh, Novel Resources. Another question came uh, today that I just passed along. We'll be talking uh, to a couple of our guests about it. Uh, Bitgold, a question one uh, a listener. Uh, Jeff wanted to know about Bitgold. Well, we're going to talk to John Rubino, who is uh, who has worked with. Um, has worked with James Turk, who's the chairman of Gold Money and Bitgold, uh, about Bitgold a little later in the show. And I do hope to have some members of Bitgold with me in the near future as well to talk about uh, that company and and all it's doing. I I believe that Bitgold is using a technology that is in the process of remonetizing gold for global transactions. And I I am very bullish on the technology uh, and and the company's stock longer term as well. But uh, in any event, we will be talking uh, briefly to uh, uh, to John Rubino about that and many other topics as well at about a half past the hour. Now, another question that came through from a, from Fred, it's, I think, very timely, and I just pass it on because I think it fits very well with what we're talking about today. Uh, Fred is the power of attorney for his mother's account at Morgan Stanley, and he's very concerned uh, in listening to Michael Oliver's remarks recently, Michael's warned about a possible sharp rise in interest rates after the blow-off in the T-bond. Uh, so he has some questions that we'll be asking Michael to talk about, uh, concerns that uh, Fred has about his mother's account, uh, mostly in short-term treasuries, but he also has some longer-dated uh, corporates. So we want to get Michael's view on, on both of those markets as well. Um, I titled today's show, Are We Nearing the End of a 34-Year Paper Asset Bull Market? Michael Oliver's work, as I noted, has suggested that we may be nearing the end of this secular bull market and long bonds and a sharp reversal from extremely low interest rates to shockingly high rates. And you can only imagine with this enormously over-leveraged global economy what that is likely to do. I mean, just the mere mention of rising rates sends the stock market lower. Well, we'll be talking, as I mentioned to Michael Oliver in just a few minutes after our first commercial break uh, about that and, and various other topics. And John Rubino as well will come in, weigh in on those issues as well as a host of others that we want to ask John about. But before we get started here um, with our guest today, I wanted to pass along uh, some insights from best-selling author Matthew Kelly from his book called The Rhythm of Life, because I believe the insights that he passes on in a a later chapter in that book titled Leaders, Critics, Dreamers, and the Future provides insights into history that help explain why we are facing one of the most critical times uh, in the history of Western civilization. Now, that may sound uh, like an outrageous statement, but I will remind you we've had other people on this show uh, like Robert Prechter, uh, like Dr. Robert McHugh. Dr. Dr. McHugh has talked about about in his work, uh, what he sees is a cataclysmic nation-changing event that is likely to take place. Well, starting on page 283 of The Rhythm of Life, here is what uh, Matthew Kelly had to say, quote, 
We are living during a very interesting period of history, a time of transition. Transition periods are the most important, yet you rarely read about them in the history books because it's difficult to judge exactly when they begin and when they end. They lie subtly sandwiched between other periods of history. We are living in such a transition period now, but to understand this time in which we live, and particularly this transition, we must first try to understand what is on either side of this transition. The reality is that our civilization is in decline. There are five signs that emerge in a declining civilization. These signs can be found in the decline of almost every civilization in recorded history. They take different forms depending on the culture of the people of the time and the technological advancement of the age, but ultimately the same devastating result is achieved. These are the five signs of a declining civilization. First, a dramatic increase in sexual promiscuity. Second, the political undermining and disintegration of family values. Third, the cultural destruction of the family unit. Fourth, the killing of innocent people. And fifth, a radical increase in non-warfare violence. These signs have played a major role in the decline and collapse of every civilization in recorded history, so much so that once these signs have emerged to some level of general occurrence and acceptance, no civilization has been able to prolong its existence for longer than 100 years. In our culture, these signs gained initial prominence during and after World War I. They were compounded and spread even more widely by the effects and consequences of World War II, and by the end of the 1960s, they were rampant. At the turn of the millennium, they have all but generally accepted. They have all been generally accepted as valid views and forms of behavior. Therefore, using a date even as late as the 1960s as the landmark for the general emergence of these signs, our civilization is left with only about 60 years. This is not a prediction. It is not a prophecy. It is a reality set in the past. It is a lesson we have continually failed to learn from history, and 60 years is a short time for one person, never mind a civilization. We live in a critical time in history. The future of humanity and the world is in danger unless radical change is adopted. This change must focus primarily not on the external realities of the world, but on the interior mysteries of our being. God is not going to destroy humanity, nor is God going to bring the world to an end. But collectively and progressively, we have involved ourselves in a complex process of self-destruction and so have endangered the world and all creation. The process of self-destruction gathers its force and momentum in an ideology that anything and everything can be exploited and consumed for profit and our own satisfaction. The result is disorder. The disorder begins with misplaced priorities in our hearts and leads to disorder socially, politically, culturally, economically, environmentally, and spiritually. This process, uh, chaos and destruction, gradual at first, but escalates over time. What does all this mean? Is the world going to end? No. Is humanity going to be wiped out completely? No. We are passing from one time to another. One civilization is dying, another will emerge. We are in transition. To understand this a little more, we should turn to our history books to learn another lesson. 
There is, I believe, a remarkable parallel between the time in which we live and the later years of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was great, it was mighty, it was powerful, and the people of that time believed that the Roman Empire would continue ruling and conquering and enjoying the fruits of ruling and conquering forever. There came a time, however, when some of the people began to realize that the Roman Empire, even as great and powerful as it was, would not last forever. The sages and the seers of that area perceived that the empire was in decline and that before too long it would give way to something new. A similar progression now waits on the doorstep of human history. The modern Western Empire has reached that point. It has achieved its pinnacle. It may linger there at the top momentarily, but not for long. Today's climate makes Nero's Rome look like the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. The people of our age, just like the people of the Roman Empire, believe that the modern Western Empire will continue ruling and conquering and that forever we will go on enjoying the fruits of our ruling and conquering. But like most things, it cannot last forever and soon will begin to fall away, making way for something new. History also teaches us that the Roman Empire gave way to a wonderful period in history the Middle Ages. Culturally, socially, politically, environmentally, and spiritually, the Middle Ages were a vibrant and vital time of growth, discovery, and progress. I am not suggesting that we go back to the Middle Ages. I'm suggesting that on the other side of this current transition is potentially a time unmatched by any other in history. There is one question that the people of any age are always asking, whether consciously or subconsciously, and that is, what will the future hold? The 20th century has been marked by tremendous advancement in material and scientific realms. 600 years passed between the invention of the plow and the invention of the automobile. It took only 60 years from the invention of the automobile to the space age. This single fact alone helps us to understand the confusion that has also marked the 20th century. This rapid change has challenged people to, re to uh, reassess their view of reality. The results have not always been positive or progressive. Perhaps because of this rapid change alone and the associated confusion, we now find ourselves preparing to be catapulted into a new period of history. The 21st century will be marked not by rapid increases in technology, but by dramatic and radical increases in people's awareness of, this, of the transcendental, a growing understanding of the vital role spirituality plays in our existence and the importance of tending to all humanity's legitimate needs. Matthew Kelly then goes on to say that uh, this new future will belong not to critics of change, but rather to men and women of vision, courage, persistence, confidence, generosity, conscience, integrity, creativity, enthusiasm, character, and virtue. Now, I would strongly suggest that listeners pick up a copy of The Rhythm of Life. It's a New York Times bestseller, published 1999, uh, uh, edited uh, the second edition in 2004. The book was, uh, it, it is, uh, I think, more timely now than it was when it was first written. But I wanted uh, to read the quote from Matthew Kelly to you because I think it sets the stage for what Michael Oliver sees in his excellent structural and momentum technical analysis, namely that we are nearing an economically earth-shattering change in the financial markets. Michael has compared four mar major markets, the stocks, bonds, precious metals, and commodities to plate tectonics. And I would argue that the most major plate in that group is uh, in this age of illegitimate money is the debt markets. 
if, as Michael suggests, we are nearing a reversal of interest rates, a major reversal in interest rates that cannot be stopped by the Fed or any other central bank, then it's hard to imagine that anything but chaos and major changes are underway uh, and that they could occur almost any time now. This is not necessarily a happy picture, but it is what it is. And as Kelly suggested, the future belongs to men and women of vision, courage, persistence, confidence, generosity, conscience, integrity, creativity, enthusiasm, character, and virtue. I don't know about you, but I want to be included with the people in the future with those positive characteristics. And those, I think, are characteristics very much in learning to know Michael Oliver that I believe he has. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him as I am almost every week because Michael uh, really does assess the world, I believe, as it exists. But he's also an optimist, and he looks for uh, for times to for better times ahead as well. We do have to go to break now, but don't go away because as soon as we come back, we will be with Michael Oliver. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rea Uranium project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. Coral Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barracks Cortez Pipeline Operation. Coral is well-positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, as we do almost every week, Michael Oliver. And Michael's 
the place you can go to f- follow Michael's work is OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining me again. Hi, Jay. Great to be back. Always good to have you with me. You know, I had an email from a subscriber and from a listener of this show uh, named Fred. Uh, he raises a question that I think is so important now, and I'd like to just uh, pass along some of his, well, I'll just, I'll just read his, uh, his email to me. He said, I am a power of attorney for my mom's account at Morgan Stanley. She depends on the income from this account to meet her expenses. Sometime back, we sold most of her stocks, and I ask that uh, we keep a large portion of that in cash. The advisor recommended short-term to medium-term U.S. Treasury notes instead of cash in her money market account. He said they are safe and have a better return. So after I agreed, he purchased a number of several, uh, over several months. Uh, And he notes, uh, Michael, he says, Michael Oliver keeps indicating that Treasuries are in a blow-off phase, but I believe he is only referring to the 10 to 30-year Treasuries. And he's asking me, but I'm going to ask you, Michael, uh, is it risky to hold these shorter-term maturity instruments? Uh, he notes that the latest one is maturing in July of 2018, so it's two years from now. Um, and Fred graciously wrote, uh, you know, any input that we have uh, would be appreciated. I should also mention he noted that uh, also in his mother's portfolio are some longer-dated corporate treasuries, um, high-quality companies to be sure, companies like Eli Lilly, AT&T, McDonald's, Merck & Company, Toyota, J.P. Morgan, Chase, etc. I mean, these are big household name companies, and you would expect if uh, if the world survives that those companies will still be around. But but uh, address his concerns and, and also maybe address uh, any concern that might be warranted in terms of longer-dated corporates. Uh, I took a look at uh, corporates... Uh Yesterday, and uh, via some ETFs that exist, that you know, indexes of corporate debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. The uh, my conclusion is this: the shorter term dated, the shorter dated treasuries, uh, one year, you know, et cetera. Uh, even up to the ten, the ten is not going to get hit as hard as the thirty. This is the. Uh, I'm looking at the ten-year German bonds, ten-year JGBs, and the thirty-year U.S. Treasuries mostly, and they all tend to behave together. The ten-year bond and the ten-year JGB don't look like the 10-year T-note oh, in terms of okay. upward, upward spiraling in price. So mm-hmm. the maturities don't quite match. Our 10-year does not look as risky as do theirs. Okay? Uh-huh. Now, of course, we know they've gone sub-zero rates in both, mm-hmm. both those countries, and I don't think we're going to do that. Um, in fact, I think there's a possibility that we've already seen the, the peak in price in the bond market. Uh, and, and being the low in yield. Uh, we've not broken down enough yet to, to, for me to make a call. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the top is in, and we're now headed down in price, up in yield. But it's getting close. Uh, but I think the major damage will be rendered in the, in the uh, longer end of the government debt market, uh, mm-hmm. most particularly our 30-year and the 10-year JGB and the 10-year bonds, because they've gotten to ridiculous levels. Of course, Japan and Germany going below zero rates is obviously ridiculous. Nobody would have thought that that's even possible if you'd asked the question to a sane person a year or two ago. Um, but as far as holding the shorter-dated U.S. Treasury stuff, I, he has a problem because his mother does need the income, and therefore he can't forego that issue. Uh, and I don't think the damage will be there so much as it's going to be on the long end of the market. As far as the corporates go, I think the corporates will suffer along with the Treasuries, but not nearly as much. 
mm-hmm. uh, primarily because they didn't go vertical like the Treasuries did the 30-year. Uh, they don't look the same on charts. They don't look the same on momentum. And it ran a spread between uh, one of these corporate ETFs and the Treasury bond market. And it's clear to me by looking at the spread relationship between the two that the one that's going to give it up is the Treasuries, uh, and far less so the corporates. So mm-hmm. though they will be damaged. Uh, I would not expect I, I expect it to, uh, half as much damage, perhaps something in that order. Uh, so you will suffer, but it's it's not going to be like the Treasury bonds. All right. I noticed that today, actually, uh, interestingly enough, with the equity market, I, I, at least earlier in the day, it was down. Uh, also, the bonds were down. Usually, we would mm-hmm. see Michael. Wouldn't we see a, you know, a weak equity market, a strong uh, debt market? Um, I don't know exactly where the the S and P's uh, are down a little bit. I guess the Dow is down 48 or so. So it's a it's a mildly down day in the equity markets, and yet the uh, you know maybe you're right. Maybe we've seen the highs in the uh, in the in the T bond. Well, one of the arguments uh, for buying stocks that uh, about the only one that's around that I could makes any sense is that uh, a good chunk of the S and P 500, uh, I think maybe a majority of the stocks there yield more than the U S. ten year. So yeah. uh, that, that's about the only argument. Of course, you have the net price risk of owning those stocks. Uh, but uh, that, that argument will tend to go away as rates rise. And so if right. the 10-year suddenly jumps uh, a percent or so and the 30-year jumps a couple percent, which I could easily see happen in a short order once we break certain uh, numbers that I'm looking at and issued in my reports, uh, once we break down in price, up in yield, I think that 30-year uh, will go from, it's about two and a quarter right now, yield, I think it could go to four rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the first leg, by the way. So, but that, that alone is a dramatic upsetting event. And oh, my goodness. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, a 4%, can you, can, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, first of all, that you, that you find it hard to imagine. I mean, I was 17.5% mortgage my first one, and I'm looking at these rates just are ridiculous. Uh, but the fact that you could go to a 4% long bond rate that would devastate the economy is just ridiculous. But it is true. It's, it's where we're at. Well, the, the government has created a situation. Um, deals have gotten ridiculous. It's, it's like any market that gets exaggerated for whatever reason might be uh, the causal factor. Uh, in the case of the bonds, it's largely the effect of central banks. And uh, they've created this situation not freshly, but over the last, uh, I'd say, since especially since about 2011. So it's been incubating for a while. And the longer it's been that way, ir- uh, irregularly priced, in other words, uh, irrationally priced, uh, the cost of money, that is, uh, the worse the problem is. So it's not a temporary hangover we're going to have. It's, it's a big one. Uh, and, and because of the size of the marketplace, the T-bond market, the, bond, the government debt market worldwide, I'm talking developed markets, by the way. Sure, Not so yes. much the emerging. Yeah, it's curious. I've looked at the emerging market debts, debt markets, and they're behaving uh, fairly well. Uh, they didn't behave well, you know, a year or two ago. But uh, they look like they're they're a better place to be than uh, the developed market government debt. A far better place to be. So if I were to spread the world uh, right now, I would buy emerging market stocks, short the S&P, and I'd buy emerging market debt, short the T-bonds. Just mm. the exact opposite of the conditions over the last few years, uh, which would have been rewarded the other way. But I think that's about the shift. Very interesting. Well, I mean, I guess you know, you just look at the long bond. Of course, it's in the it's in the math, isn't it? That the underlying instrument, because of the duration, uh, the short term debt, you're not 
you know, nearly as vulnerable. You don't make as much when the rates come down. Right. You don't lose as much when the rates go up. So, in any event, uh, Michael, you've you've seen in the past. I think you've thought that uh, you know when these two major plates grind against each other, at some point there is a major earthquake that takes place. And I think you've always sort of looked at, uh, or recently anyway, looked at the notion that when when the Fed loses control, the, uh, the, the the central banks lose control of the interest rates and they can't suppress them anymore, that's when we're going to see, most likely, uh, a lot of trauma in the equity markets, right? That's correct, I, absolutely. And I think the main beneficiary of this unwinding of this, this uh, distortion uh, will be the commodity markets, which have undergone uh, a, a deflationary collapse from 2011 through last year. A uh, huge percent decline. Uh, we saw a good chunk in gold, silver, you name it, uh, big downs. And so therefore, they are cleansed, so to speak, and coming back already. They're having a decent year, far better than the S&P, by the way. Even the commodity basket is up yeah. a lot more than the S&P. Oil's up a lot more than the S&P. Gold's up far more, et cetera, et cetera. This is just the beginning of that shift. So what had been... Uh, Slighted or, or, or not a good place to be over the last several years. All those roles are reversing now, uh, I think, in mass. And uh, there's a little bit of disconnect between when it starts in one and another, but not, not a lot of disconnect. And I, yeah. therefore, the place to be is in hard assets. Well, I absolutely believe that, and your technicals are still looking very strong, very good. I know, I believe for gold and for yes. uh, for silver. I mean, again, your gold call is something in the high, mid to high fourteen hundreds, likely to be the first major resistance low, low to mid fifteen hundreds. If I got that right, yeah, that's correct. I have fourteen seventy to fifteen forty zone. Uh-huh. Uh, the other one I'm excited about, of course, is GDX, which is my <coughs> the ETF I look for the gold miners, mm-hmm. which is for the uh, gold miners. The, oh the yeah, big, it's the flying. Big, the big, the big names, uh, it's not doing as well as it, uh, a lot of the smaller gold mining yeah. stocks on a percent basis, but it's, it's up 125%. You know, so yeah. It's not bad for the year. Uh, and I think it's about to, uh, I think it's going to go to about 39. Right wow. now it's trading between 30 and 31. Uh, and I think that my suspicion is that that last tail end of this first leg up in the gold miners is going to be very rapid. In other words, we've gone at a steady pace from... $13, $14 on up to 30 a fairly mm-hmm. a, a steep steep angle, but at a steady, constant pace. I think the next $9 or so could be uh, could occur in a few weeks. Wow. Uh, in other Huge. words, you get there fat. Once you finally unleash, I think the unleash point is about 33.50. So if you get to about 33.50, it's a couple bucks above the recent high. I have a suspicion you get to that price, you'll suddenly, boom, you'll be at 39. Now that's a place where I'd consider taking some profits for a while. Uh, it's difficult to urge anybody to get out of that marketplace, uh, gold, yeah. gold miners, etc. But uh, there might be a point there, an inflection point, that's worth dodging uh, and sure. getting back in. You know. Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. So, do you see the uh, equity markets uh, leading the gold still? Then, gold uh, bullion. You think uh, uh, that's been the way it's been? Oh, At some point, the gold then, miners leading gold. Yeah, oh, yes. I, right. Uh, I saw that last year coming. And yeah. therefore, I was uh, trying to prepare my subscribers for the for the illogical choice of buying gold miners, which for ten years yeah. uh, reality has told them not to do. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. They vastly underperform gold, uh, and now it's quite the opposite, and uh, it's overdue. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Michael. That's exactly right. During the bull market in gold bullion up till 2011 or so, the miners were lagging the gold bullion. So, uh, good point. Even though we had 10 years of bull market in, in, uh, in the bullion, the miners hadn't done nearly as well. And boy, are they doing well now. I can tell that. My subscribers and a growing number of people listening to this show are subscribing, uh, and rightly so, because the juniors and the expiration companies, the guys that find the gold in the ground, uh, they have the leverage. Are much more, uh, they're much more risky, Michael, than the stocks you watch in the uh, in in your index there that you're talking about. But boy, when you find uh, you have a small cap company that finds a million ounces of gold, it's a big deal. So mm-hmm. it's uh, very interesting. Well, it's really interesting. You know, one other question I want to ask you, and I, I'm going to steal this time from John Rubino, our next guest. But I just want to ask you this. You know, one thing that's always troubled me with regard to this interest rate, T bond rate. People will ask you, why can't the Fed just simply keep buying the things? Why can't the Fed infinitely buy them and keep the price of in, uh, the interest rates low and keep the, the bonds high? Well, it's I, I, the sheer size of the market and the exaggeration that they've created uh, is such that uh, also the political forces in the world are changing as well. So to some uh-huh. extent, the central banks are uh, tools of politics. And we know mm-hmm. that our central banks are de- definitely have a political bias, if you want, uh, which is anti-market. Uh, yep. And therefore, uh, a lot of the political forces that have dominated Europe and the U.S. and Japan over the recent decades uh, have been very statist. Yep. And uh, very accommodative to having accommodative central banks. And therefore, the, you know, they're tied to each other. Uh, yep. The political disruptions that are starting to sweep Europe... Um, we saw the Brexit, and, and there's very, various versions of that occurring throughout Europe, uh, with mm-hmm. uh, minor parties rising up that are anti-EU, also anti-ECB. So you could have political ramifications as well uh, that could affect the central banks. Uh, but as long as they keep doing that, uh, even if they manage to control rates on the long end, which I don't think they can uh, at, at this point in time, the other impact will be occurring, and that is investors ultimately take the money that the Fed creates and put it where it feels best. Uh-huh. The Fed, it felt good to buy stocks 2009, 10, and 11 because they had been vastly taken down. Therefore, yep. they had room to go up, and therefore, when they, the Fed provided the liquidity, and other central banks did, investors applied that money into that particular market because it felt good. Now yep. it doesn't feel so good. In fact, <laughs> if, you, you know, if you own gold or S&P this year, what feels better? Okay? Yeah, the message exactly. gets around, and pretty soon investors will reallocate the liquidity provided by the central bank to where they want it to go, and I don't think the Fed wants it. Uh, a, good yeah. <laughs> a solid bull market in gold or a strong up move in the commodity indexes. Well, that could be, Michael. We do have to go now, but I just okay. uh, leave on this one remark that Bill Gross, I think it was last week, said that uh, he would he doesn't want to buy stocks or bonds. He suggests people should buy the things that the Fed has not yet bought, and he uh-huh. named gold, gold and real estate. Well, I mean, um, uh, land, I should say. So uh, I think that's very interesting, and I think it meshes very well, Michael, with your views of the plate tectonics and which ones are uh, fixing for a major bull run and which ones are ready for uh, the downturn. So uh, any, in any event, I uh, look forward to talking to you next week, Michael. Thanks so much again you, for Jay. being with us. All the best to you, and uh, next week, hopefully. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with John Rubino in a few minutes. We'll get John's take on some of the same things we've been talking to Michael about uh, and some of his thoughts on the equity market as well. So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino.
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned, near-surface, Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rea Uranium project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again John Rubino. John is very well known on this show. He's been on a number of times. Uh, we just mentioned that uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with him, uh, go to dollarcollapse.com, dollarcollapse.com to pick up John's work and uh, links to a lot of other great sites and great articles. I mean, John handpicks articles that he thinks are very important and need to be out there uh, in uh, and spread out to the to the public as much as he can. Uh, and so um, he, he's also the author of a, of a couple of great books that he co-authored a couple of them with uh, James Turk. And um, so uh, welcome, John. It's really good to have you with me again. Hey, Jay. Good to talk to you again. You know, I uh, mentioning James Turk, you, uh, you and James co-authored uh, a book uh, in the past. And uh, one of our listeners sent in an email and he wanted to know if I might get your opinion on Bitgold. As a uh, and gold money as a way to own gold, uh, you know, I, I responded to the to the listener saying that well, uh, you know, it's you're not that that involved with Bitgold if if at all. But uh, of course, James Turk is, and we'll have James on our show sometime, sometime hopefully in the not too distant future. Uh, but do you have any thoughts about Bitgold and um, and its capabilities of of providing and maybe remonetizing gold? Well, I love the concept of bringing gold into the modern monetary system because, yeah, you know, we have the technology now, at least in theory, to turn gold back into a currency that trades and that is portable. And, and you know, that's huge if it can work. And that's what gold money is attempting. And I'm not... 
um, technically well enough versed in what they're doing to have a good opinion about whether they'll succeed or not. But it looks like so far so good. They're um, they're drawing a lot of customer attention. They're uh, managing quite a bit of money now, and they seem to be ramping up without. Um, any kind of technical glitches. So I, I think their first year in operation is really promising. And if they can live up to their ideals, you know, if they can um, manage the system the way they're intending to, then you will end up with, for instance, a debit card mm-hmm. that you can take with you when you travel around the world and use to um, convert the gold in a bank vault that they're managing for you into local currency wherever you are. Mm-hmm. And that's huge because the, the one of the big problems with owning physical gold is that it's pretty hard to take with you when you go somewhere. You know, it sits it sits where it is, and there's, a, you know, a risk inherent in you leaving it in one place and going to another place. And it doesn't allow you to move it with, with you. If you decide you want to leave a country for whatever reason, because the country is becoming financially and uh, politically unstable, for instance, it's really hard to take a lot of gold bullion with you. But if you've got a, a gold money account, that is linked to your debit card. You take the debit card with you, and basically you're taking your gold with you, um, in theory. And um, so it'll be interesting to see in the years ahead if this works out in practice. And as I said, I think so far the start is very promising. Yeah, indeed. Uh, In fact, I have in my hands right now a gold money MasterCard. It's a debit card uh, that, uh, that has worked. Uh, I had some issues at certain at gas pumps in various places, but I the last I tried to use it, it worked. And the way it works is you have your gold account that you know, it, and the value of that gold account changes with the price of gold. Then at any time when you want to take, you want to sell some gold and turn it into dollars, you do that and put it into your gold money Mastercard or Bitgold Mastercard uh, debit account. Uh, and then you can take it to a store and buy things. And I've used it, so it, it actually does work. I know it works. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure that it works as well as I'd like it to yet, because I have. I, it had some glitches, but, but it, it is very interesting. So I just want to get your thoughts on that, John. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'd like to turn to some of the um, some of the uh, some of the topics that you've featured on your uh, Dollar Collapse website. One uh, that you put out there: Why interest rates can't go much lower. And you, uh, you know, you you posted five charts: the Japanese uh, GDP chart, uh, Japan inflation rate chart. Uh, you showed the EU GDP growth rate and the EU uh, inflation rate, and then the Deutsche Bank char- uh, share price chart, which is uh, going down very dramatically, or has over the last year or so, uh, last number of months anyway, uh, reflecting a decline substantial decline in the profits of Deutsche Bank. Well, uh, help us understand. I mean, we were just talking to Michael Oliver, whose technical work is suggesting very, uh, very, very certainly in his view, and and he has been so spot on on so many markets, very certainly that we are seeing the end or a blow-off phase. We may have actually seen, he thinks, a peak in the T-bond rate. Um, But uh, tell us why, you know, from a fundamental point of view, Tell us why you think we can't go much lower in interest rates. Well, if you look at the first four charts that you mentioned, Jay, that was mm-hmm. the basically the economic statistics from um, Japan and Europe, where where interest rates are 
negative almost across the board, yeah. um, it hasn't worked. Their economies are kind of flatlining, or in, in Japan's case, dropping back into um, um, deflation. Yeah. So clearly, negative interest rates didn't ignite the rip-roaring boom that Keynesian economic theory says should happen. And, and so mainstream economists basically look at that and say, well, let's just do more. You know, if, if yeah. negative 1% doesn't work, let's do negative 5% or whatever. Yeah. But at the same time, this is happening. The, the big financial institutions like banks, insurance companies, pension funds, and money market funds, and individual savers are all being crushed by negative interest rates. There was just a story um, uh, about Japanese banks that came out last week that said Jap- uh, the big Japanese bank profits are now almost $3 billion a year lower than they would be otherwise in a normal interest rate environment. Wow. And pushing interest rates down further will hurt the banks even more. And the um, the Deutsche Bank price chart kind of illustrates the damage that's being done. You know, Deutsche Bank was $53 a share in 2014. Now it's $14 a share. And this is Europe's biggest, strongest bank, supposedly. Yeah. So there, there's apparently a limit to how low interest rates can go without blowing up most of the financial sector because you can't run a pension fund if your entire fixed income portfolio um, is earning you nothing or less than nothing. Same thing with an insurance company. And if you're an individual, you can't save for retirement and you can't be retired if the safe stuff that used to generate you a reasonable income now costs you money to invest in. So we're perverting the financial system by um, lowering interest rates to this point. And I'm not saying we won't try some new monetary experiment, but I, I am saying that it seems that the unintended consequences, the negative effects of, of um, negative interest rates are beginning to loom very large. And so probably what we'll do next is some variation of the debt jubilee in which governments just create a whole bunch of new currency and give it to people in some way, either through some big infrastructure program or tax cuts or just direct purchases of individuals' assets. You know, maybe they buy your house for twice its market value, something like that. And, in you know, that doesn't rely on interest rates and therefore might not hurt the banks and so it might be more politically palatable for the the people who actually run the government, which is to say the uh, the, the big finance people, you know, the, the 1% who run the big banks, who um, own the favored accounts at the big banks, um, they're kind of tired of negative interest rates. And since <laughs> in a lot of cases, they're in charge of national governments, or at least they're they're staffing the important positions in the Treasury Department of most mm-hmm. national governments. Goldman um, Sachs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you got to figure that the U.S. government, which normally does what Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase wants, will do so in the future because they they literally own the Fed. The big banks own the Fed. You know, people don't realize that the Fed isn't a government institution. It's actually um, a private sector entity that is owned by a consortium of big banks. And sure. so it's no surprise that they do what their bosses want. And it, increasingly, their bosses want higher interest rates or at least not a continued decline in interest rates. So if rates continue to go down, that's the market overriding the will of the big players in the financial markets, which will be very interesting. And, it, it, you know, it could happen. But there's already $13 trillion of, of negative yield debt floating around the world. And there might actually even be more than that when you consider that for um, a Japanese investor 
or a European investor to buy treasury bonds, normally they, they buy the bonds and then they hedge the currency risk that comes with mm-hmm. buying a bond that pays you in a different currency. And mm-hmm. when you include the hedging costs, U.S. treasuries have negative yields for mm-hmm. those investors now too. Wow. So wow. that that might increase the actual amount of negative yield debt in the world. And, and you know, it's hard to see how much further we can go into the uh, tens of trillions of dollars. So, um, uh, Well, it's very know. interesting. I, I noticed this morning that uh, Dudley at the, at the New York Fed, uh, he's been talking about talking up this notion of, of, of higher rates. Uh, and yet, John, you know, whenever they start to talk higher rates, it has a, a negative impact on the equity market. So people are screaming and hollering about the declining value of their stock. So we have a tug and a pull here, don't we? It's not we, one side or the other. And if, if I look at the, uh, I mean, explaining maybe to our listeners why uh, such low rates are bad for banks, and uh, if, I think it, uh, this is my understanding of it. Banks they tend to borrow short term and lend long term, and if the long end of the yield curve is coming down, and if the short end is negative and the long end is virtually almost negative or, or very skimpy on the positive side, then there's no margin there left for the banks, right? Well, and that's what's happening to the banks, among yeah. other things. But one of the things that's happening is that the uh, the money they make on a given loan is shrinking. Right. And but but it also um, means that see when you distort the financial markets by manipulating every major asset class the way the governments of the world are doing now, it makes it harder for the big bank uh, big banks trading desks to yeah. make any money. And that's where the the big profits used to come from for mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs and, and to an extent J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, they would set up trading desks that basically you know place a bet on something and then somebody else from the trading desk moves the market towards the uh, the original bet and they make money that way. In other words, they manipulate the markets. But if you have governments coming in and indiscriminately manipulating markets by, for instance, having central banks buy equities across the board, which is what mm-hmm. they're doing now, mm-hmm. uh, you make it harder for the big banks. In other words, you have a bigger predator in the market, the, and, and so the smaller predators at the uh, the commercial banks uh, can't manipulate their markets as easily as they used to, and so they don't make money. And so the the big banks don't have any way to make money now. You know, investment banking is not going so well. Uh, lending certainly isn't. Trading is a, a loss making proposition now for a lot of them, and so they're in in grave danger and they're having to shrink you know um, Deutsche Bank to go back to that example is laying people off right and left taking massive um, losses with every earnings report and uh, shrinking in, in you know they're, they're completely eliminating certain lines of business and they're turning into a smaller entity because they can't function um, as a financial supermarket anymore and I think it's true for most of the big banks now and that's that's a very big deal because finance has become so dominant in the global economy. Right, right. And, and finance is the most important industry, and it's shrinking. Um, it it makes it hard for the global economy to grow because what's left, you know, is is oil or something like that going to make up the take up the slack with banking? Mm-hmm. Is, is mm-hmm. and and that's not going to happen. So mm-hmm. it's hard to see where we generate growth if. The big finance entities are shrinking, and energy is, 
if not shrinking, not growing anymore. You know, what, what is left? Really, retailing? <laughs> that's, yeah, no. That's not a very, re- No, that's not very promising either yeah. because everybody's broke and they've, uh, you know, pretty much have maxed out uh, to a great extent. Well, it seems to me, I mean, if you're talking about a debt jubilee, I think is the terminology or the, the notion of debt forgiveness, I guess, and what you're saying is politically more palatable way might be helicopter money, printing money and sending it to the masses, huh? Yeah, well, you know, these are all terms for basically the same thing, which, as you said, is creating new currency and giving it to people. It's another term for it is QE for the people. And and they, they all mean largely the same thing. The details of how they do it might vary from country to country. You know, some countries are talking about a guaranteed, um, individual income where they give you 8,000 euros a year if you're in Europe yeah. or uh, 5,000 Swiss francs or yeah. something like that, which is basically, that's what it is. You know, they're, they're giving you money and you can, if you want to, pay off your debts and, or yeah. spend it, which is what the Keynesian economists would love. You know, they'd love you to spend that money and then borrow some more money against your future guaranteed government income and spend yeah. that. And um, the, um, the downside of this is pretty obvious, which is that we'd be creating huge amounts of new currency and supply and demand 101 says that with an increase in supply of that magnitude, you got to have a commensurate decrease in value. Mm-hmm. And so we end up destroying the value of our currencies, which, check this out, Jay, here's where it gets really interesting. If you're a, a rational actor in finance and somebody, you know, the government announces that they're going to do this and you understand that it's going to make the currency less valuable year after year, what's your rational response? It's to borrow as much money as possible, right? Sure, because you're going to sure. be paying it back in cheaper currency. Sure. And so you end up, in, in trying to do a debt jubilee that eliminates debt, you end up increasing the amount of debt in the system by encouraging everybody who can borrow to borrow. Right. And so you get the blow-off phase of this 70-year-long credit bubble, uh, which ends with a crash that is unlike anything we've ever seen before, because we already have more debt per capita and more debt nominally, you know, in gross numbers than we had in 1929 by far. You know, we're much more indebted now than we were before the Great Depression. And so when this thing blows up, all bets are off. There's going to be no way to predict what happens exactly, except, you know, it's going to be crazy. You know, it's going to be um, um, incredibly painful for the average person obviously, because they're the ones who always suffer from government financial mismanagement. But I think it's going to be bad for a lot of other people who think they're going to get through this in good shape, too. You know, uh, what we're seeing now with hedge funds is an interesting example of that. Um, Mm -hmm. Hedge funds. What are they doing? They're they're having a hard time making money. They are. They can't the figure out the smartest guys on Wall Street. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, they've generally been considered to be the smartest guys in the finance world, the hedge fund managers. And one after another, they're reporting terrible numbers. And then the uh, the clients, the pension funds and the university endowments and the big foundations are pulling their money out of these hedge funds and they're having to lay people off and in some cases close down big brand name hedge funds because these guys cannot figure out these markets. So it, it's... Highly likely that a lot of people who think they're bulletproof because they've got the smartest advisors working for them and they're paying them, you know, 2% a year on their money and 20% of the profits, you know, huge fees for brilliant, supernaturally brilliant financial advice. They're going to get burned too. (laughs) Well, John, uh, we're just about out of time here, but I have to, I just have to 
make note of Bill Gross's remarks about a week ago or so, and uh, I'm sure you've you've seen this, but and heard what he had to say. I mean, I, I believe. Uh, he said something to the effect that he doesn't want to buy stocks or bonds, and he's suggesting that we should buy the things that the Fed has not yet bought, like gold and land, huh? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, well, you don't get anybody smarter than Bill Gross. Anybody more mainstream than Bill Gross essentially saying the system is so screwed out, screwed up that you better get out of it and buy gold and tangibles, huh? Yeah, yeah. And and he is joining a long list of heavy hitters who are saying the same thing. I mean, George yeah. Soros loaded up oh. on gold a year ago, and Carl Icahn, you know, these guys who are basically free to buy anything yeah. and and have no problem going very long when yeah. the, the situation is appropriate. Now now they're going defensive. You know, they're they're yeah. going risk off in a big way. And I, I think we should pay attention to, to what I these guys I think we should with, pay attention to what yeah. these smart guys are saying. Yeah. And of course, uh, you and James Turk and a lot of other guests on our show have been early on saying that we need to start doing that. But now when you see the likes of those mainstream guys saying it, I think you really have to take note. The time is probably very near in which uh, we're going to have a lot of chaos unfortunately but it is what it is and we want to plan as best we can john we are basically out of time now i want to thank you very much for being with us and never enough time with you we'll have you back again sometime in the near future all right great thanks jay thank you so much well folks that is all the time we have this week uh, next week mish shedlack will be with us first time we've had mish with us in quite some time uh we're going to talk about our his topic uh, one of them that he's recently written about are the fed's interest rate policies self-defeating well i think we just had that question answered by john rubino but in any event we'll get mish's take on that and a lot of other uh issues as well so uh, until next week goodbye and god's blessings to you Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Coral Gold is an experienced precious metals explorer. Coral recently sold its flagship Robertson Gold property in Crescent Valley, Nevada to Barrick for $20 million and a royalty that increases with the price of gold. Coral is now refining its vision and focus for gold exploration in Nevada with over $20 million in cash, a favorable share structure, and three gold properties in the Crescent Valley region near Barracks Cortez Pipeline Operation. Coral is well positioned to pursue a number of growth opportunities now under consideration by management. Coral trades as CLH on the TSX Venture Exchange. 